0: Robert Sheriff. True Story, Sad Story, Domestic and Sexual Abuse of a Seven-Year-Old Boy. Robert's First Book, Biography. Nobody's Home. The first four chapters are read. All my other books have been added to podcast. I am a poet, author, singer, actor, model and historian on American history. In the Name of the Father. Chapter 1. My father did not admit to having a past. The story of his early life was a mystery lost in his lack of words and an inability to expose anything that could be vulnerability, humanity or even kindness. My mother would eventually and begrudgingly supply me a few details, but this only went on to provoke more questions. He was an enigma to the end, leaving no suicide note, no apology and no peace for those who survived him. I am only certain of one thing. My father's hate for me was virulent. The dynamic of the real family is rarely the all-encompassing love of the fairy tale or the softness of the detergent commercial, but my family was extreme by any standards. Violence was our currency, and the absence of genuine love left a void that was filled with darkness, betrayal and humiliation. We were an Australian family and Australia was an uncompromising place in the 60s or at least that is how it appeared to me. We were told we were growing up in the lucky country. We were told we could achieve anything through hard work and spirit yet at the same time I was being brutalized and made to feel worthless by the people I loved the most. It would happen at night. I was small for my age, a premature twin, the smallest to survive in Victoria at the time, I was easily carried out of the house and into the garden by someone of my father's build. He would be drunk, clumsy, and rough. I would be hastily stripped. My clothes were torn from me and I would have to stand defenseless and naked in the yard. I would have to take my chances. I would not wait to see if he would stop at the humiliation and spare me the violence, he never did. I would take advantage of his drunkenness and feel for his grip to loosen or slip and I would go. I would run through the neighborhood to escape the attack. Was I worried about the neighbor seeing me naked? Hardly, this had happened so many times before. I knew what it was to run barefoot on cracked bitumen that was baking from the day's biting sun. I knew running naked in the near freezing winter nights too. I knew what it was like to be running for your life. I spent a childhood running the streets and I've spent a lifetime escaping my father. My father was born in South Australia in 1929. He was the son of a prostitute and born out of wedlock. He must have not known his father in any meaningful way but he will have had suspicions about the one-hundreds of men who visited his mother's house. My father had inherited a large build, olive skin, deep brown eyes, and tremendous capacity for anger. My father's hair and mood were black for his entire life. The earliest photograph I have seen of my father is him as a boy holding a black dog. He had a patience with animals that he was never able to show to people. He was tall and skinny with a mop of black hair. This child would develop into a man of six foot four with a powerful build clothed in skin scarred by the Australian sun. He was mutilated emotionally and carried a pain that could infect anyone in his vicinity. His hands would grow to be huge, always at least twice the size of mine yet he was quite graceful in his movements and well kept. He was clean-shaven and took pride in his appearance. At home, he dressed in casual jeans and shirt, and he insisted that they were clean and ironed, which meant my mother would often discover lipstick stains on his collar. A fight would then ensue with the devil rising into those brown eyes and consuming the man. My father's childhood was as fractured as any other part of his life. He would always be on the move, change jobs and locations, and even personalities, but his consistent companions were alcohol and misery. He was christened Robert Sheriff, the same name he gave me. He left school early and worked a succession of tough, unskilled jobs. He was a station hand and a fruit picker and went from one manual labor to another building calluses and emotional hardness. The one anecdote I know from his youth is an incident where he nearly drowned. At age nine he was pulled from the water at Port Perry. Perry was and still is a small industrial town in the shadow of grain silos and a lead smelter. About a three-hour drive north of Adelaide, where grain shipping and industry had called for unskilled immigrants to come and build the town. All of life in Perry takes place with the backdrop of the smell of sulfur, a soft scent of hell from the lead smelting process. One day my father fell into the water that carried the grain ships and plunged toward oblivion in the waters that reflected the belching chimney stacks. A man walking past at the time saw my father fall and dived into the water to save him. The story made the local press where it describes my father's savior as a hero. This stranger's act has ensured 35 descendants, I exist because of him, my children and grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my sisters, my beloved twin brother were all offered a chance of life because my father did not drown that day, but I wonder if my father had any appreciation for his rescuer and those bitter and soulless years he lived until he decided to meet his maker at his own hands. Though my father's history was patchy my memories of my own childhood are not. The sight of his near death became significant for me as a young boy as he took me there to teach me how to swim. Father's lesson involved throwing me off the jetty with a grin on his face. I had sunk in the same waters he had, in the shadow of the same industrial chimneys and the runoff of the same toxic processes. I did not have a hero on the banks poised to save me. I would have to save myself. I had already learned by this stage that I would have to fight to survive him, and I swam for the surface and pulled myself out of the water despite him repeatedly. I have an image of my father, when he was outside the house, as a well dressed man, a man who wore grey pants, a white shirt, and a two tone brown and grey jacket that was considered respectable at that time. He was always drinking. He drank West End long necks at breakfast time. He had three cartons at home every week, but that was nothing to what he drank in the pub. I think my mother had tried to get him to cut back once but she was never foolish enough to suggest it again. Every image I can conjure of him has him glass in hand or glass to lips. People feared him. He dominated every space he entered and other people, even adults, were as affected as me. He had a dark energy, a belligerent nature and he would live life with a dangerous soundtrack of his beloved country music or loud rock and roll. Our house echoed with the sound of Johnny Cash and Hank Williams. It made me hate county music and I am only starting to get over my aversion now. The neighbors were always scared of my father. Wherever we lived he created an empire where his actions were uncriticized for fear of violence and retaliation. All our neighbors witnessed my humiliation plenty of times. They were scared to get involved and even if they witnessed with closed mouths they were greeted with a barrage of snarling and swearing. I know there was an ugly silence around our house and people were witness to horrific crimes without ever speaking up or intervening. I do not carry any resentment for those people. This was a time when men were masters in their own house. It was not uncommon for children or wives to be abused and the man to rape the wife then the abuser to meet the police sergeant in the hotel for a quiet word and a pint later. In the early 60s in Australia there were no safe houses no campaigns against domestic violence and a belief that a family was a man's property. I think there was only one occasion when an adult intervened on my behalf. He was called Mr. White and I remember that he always wore brown, was 6 feet 6 inches, around 240 pounds with blonde wavy hair and couple days of beard growth. He was solid as a shit house that used to be at the back of Auntie Blanche's and Uncle Albert's house. Mr. White was briefly my savior, My man on the shore who saw my fall and dived in to save me. We lived on Hargrave Street in Northfield at the time and Mr. White was a neighbor who tired of my father's version of child care and belted the crap out of him. The police arrived just as he was walking due east and we never saw Mr. White again. This was a rare adult intervention on my behalf. An act of violence that did not teach my father a thing and did not save me from further abuse. As I have said I am not angry at the witnesses who did not come forward or the authorities that did not protect me. People knew right from wrong but unless you were Mr. White you were not armed enough to take my father on. Justice was only available to the physically strong and often my father was by far the strongest. My father was an advocate for the merits of physical strength. He hated my smallness, my frailness, and my inability to hurt the same way he could. He systematically set about to teach his children strength and suffering. He would fill two buckets with water and tell me to stretch my arms out. I knew to do as I was told and despite knowing what was coming I would always do exactly as he asked. When my arms were out and steady, he would loop the bucket handles over my wrists and demand that I hold them there, straight for as long as I could. I would hold the buckets, my arms screaming with pain, desperate not to disappoint or spark the anger of my father. He would watch me and justify his actions with the defense that he was driving me to be healthier and more vigorous. This was the start of my father's torture and it began when I was six years old. I have other recollections of this early abuse. He had caught me swearing and decided to chastise me to teach me a lesson. He took me outside and removed my trousers and underwear. He then put me over his knee and beat me with a garden hose. The strokes were so violent that I was left with blue and red strokes over my backside and sitting down was impossible for the coming week. These memories are vague and without detail. But I recognized them as the start of patterns of abuse that would culminate in broken bones, emotional damage, and a world of hate that not everyone would survive. My mother met my father in 1952. He was working for the RAF and she told me it was love at first sight. I believe that she did love him before they were married, in that moment when he first arrived in her life and before she really knew him. He was tall and good looking. Her family had been extremely strict, whilst his upbringing was wild and libertarian. She must have seen him as a glamorous escape. In 1953, they married. She told me that all his mates came, and he joined them in getting very drunk. She was appalled, but she must have known that alcohol and my father were synonymous by then. His heritage was beer soaked, with his mother being a heavy drinker and the addictive gene being passed on to me. I wonder if she knew how tormented her new, young husband was. I wonder what sort of life she had dreamed of and if she thought that my father could bring her happiness. She could never have known she would die with her husband lost to suicide and her family absent from her bedside. My father was 24 years old when my brother Peter and I were born. My mother recalled that he was upset by the drive to the hospital to see his new sons. It had been an inconvenience to come to visit and he was happy for her to know it. I can't remember much of those early years at home with my mother and brother but that is no reason to assume they were comfortable or without incident. My father would often remind me that he had hated me from my birth. He told me that he wished I had never been born or had died in childbirth on many occasions and it was like I had been born into his hatred and lived there my whole life. His insult to me was that I was fucking stupid. He would use that insult for my entire childhood and it did the damage he required. My father's need for destruction was always going to end with his own. We were just lucky he could not take us with him. He had been known to come home drunk with a can of petrol and threatened to set himself, the house and us alight. His pain was not a personal matter but something everyone else had to pay for. At night I would lie awake waiting for him to come home. I was terrified by the cast of the street light outside my room. It would reflect in the dark of his eyes if he came into my room. It would make him look like the demon he was and convince me that this small industrial town was a corner of hell. He would stalk around the house brooding over something that happened that day, last week, a month ago or not even at all. He would look for his target. My mother, my brother, my sister or me. Then he would punish, seek vengeance. All his misery and hatred and disappointment would be played out on his victim. Often, I was that victim, the focus for his spite. Everyone was terrified of this man and I became a scapegoat. My father once told me he was more frightened of me than I should be of him. Perhaps therefore he reserved a special hatred for me. I can remember his hand around my throat. His thumb on my Adam's apple. Four or five seconds of pressure is all it will take. He would say. Perhaps he was promising to end my pain as well as his. I know my mother blamed me for things she did. She stole money and blamed me. She even buried $2,000 in the garden once and dad went over it with the lawnmower. She laid the responsibility with me. She was just trying to avoid another rape or beating. And so the violence continued. We moved around Australia taking my father's misery and torture with us. I was beaten by my father at the pie cart. I was beaten by him in the street. I was beaten at home. Fists and abuse were the landscape of my childhood as much as the hot dry summers and crabbing down at the jetty. Days out with my father were tours of the hotels or waiting in the car outside a brothel. Every lesson I learned under his tuition was self-destructive and selfish. The irony was that I still loved that man. He was my father, and I was his son. It would take a particularly brutal assault to give me any chance of escape and once again my rescuers would not be hauling me out of the water but dragging me further under. I would not be able to take a breath for some while. Mother's Love Chapter 2 In defense of my mother, she was a dreamer. I understand that now that I have made it to adulthood. I got through my life by constructing a future where things were better. It was an impossible dream that allowed us to disengage from reality and to survive it. From an early age, she wanted to escape the poverty of her upbringing and the limits of her class. She wanted to be better, different and special. She dreamt of Hollywood and imagined being a singer or a movie actress. She would constantly play records on an old gramophone that I now keep in my current home. We were brought up to the sounds of Al Jolson and my mother in duet echoing through the house. My mother would imagine being one of the artists she played, an international superstar. I think she must have imagined that life for me too and that way she did not have to acknowledge my reality. In her head I was with her on the stage. I was famous, rich, happy and she did not have to feel any guilt. I shared her dreams of being anywhere far away from where I was and inherited her ability to live in a constructed fantasy rather than face the pain of my real life. It is a method for those of us who have extraordinarily little light. We descend into a darkness where we must imagine stars. My mother's was born November 1934. Like my father, she was born out of wedlock at a time when such things were important. My mother's, Mother and grandmother and her aunties and uncles were all born in Victoria to relatively poor families. My mother told me there was a lot of mental health problems on her mother's side and instability and chaos would be passed on to her offspring. In her youth she was a beautiful looking woman, 5 feet 5 inches, brown hair, blue eyes, skin like peaches and cream, with a slender build. She was a vibrant person who must have had her fair share of admirers. I expect she had quite a choice if she was prepared to settle for ordinary working man. My father was not a film star or singer, but he was not the pedestrian normal Aussie bloke either. Perhaps that was his appeal? My father was the one who brought violence into the house. My father was a bully, a coward, a drunkard and an abuser. However, my mother did not protect me. My mother did not defend me. In fact, my mother would sometimes be responsible for putting me in the path of my father to defend herself. I find it difficult to understand and forgive her for the childhood I endured, but I do know that she suffered at his hands too and was ill equipped for the challenge that was leaving him. She was also scared. She suffered both physical and sexual abuse from the beginning of their relationship, and this is a time where safe houses and domestic abuse prosecutions were unheard of. Perhaps if my mother had a better connection with reality, She would never have entertained my father but finding herself married and pregnant she was content to withdraw into fantasy and let her children take their chances. My mother and father originally put down roots in Victoria and our first home was in a little town called Laverton. We lived in a rustic red brick house with a flat silver roof that reflected the sun, so you could always see our roof from the bottom of the highway. I remember a large lounge and the floorboards that creaked. All the sounds of that time are fearful and ominous. There was the sound of a howling wind out in the backyard that often accompanied my play and there was the sound of my parents fighting from tea time to midnight. It was the backdrop to my early childhood, the score of a horror movie. If my parents had a honeymoon period, then it was well and truly over by the time I was born. I was born 10 to 25 p.m. 8th of July 1954 in Carlton Hospital, Victoria, one of twin baby boys, my brother Peter being born 10 minutes later. We were premature, and you could hold us in one hand as we were exactly two pounds each. At that stage we were the smallest children to ever survive in Victoria. Mother was only 20 years old. At one stage she would have five children under eight and that was very nearly six if not for my baby brother's death. Mother had to go hospital each day to express milk as we were in incubators for months before we could come home. Mother said that father always complained about driving her to the hospital each day as he was tired from work. We were born into resentment and when we came home, we would have to be feed every three to four hours. Father never ever fed or changed us, so mother had to deal with two babies on her own because he was working or sleeping. To give my mother's story some context you would have to understand Australia in 1954. I have said before that Australia was known at this time as the lucky country. We were about to see an economic boom. The Second World War had finished nine years ago, The Korean War had ended the year previously. Everyone was your friend, you did not lock your doors. People would go to the football, cricket, tennis, races and the beach. Life was good, life was fun. Young couples would walk along the beach, hold hands. It was optimistic and innocent. The hotels would shut at 6 p.m., and the men, boys, could not drink or vote until they were 21. This was a country built to raise a family, to prosper and live. My mother must have felt very outside of this idea when she brought her children home to a man who hated them. She told me from day one he resented me. She recalls him throwing me around the room. I was the firstborn son and the focus for all his rage. I was her little soldier, but instead of intervening, she used me to provoke my father. She admitted to finding ways to torment him, she would tell him she hated him, and his response would be to run riot, scream, rant, punch doors and walls. I was a mummy's boy but my mother was also lighting the fuse that would explode and end up destroying my childhood. I must ask myself what she had ever seen in this man. She had such ambition, such aspiration for a better life and when he showed up, she must have thought he was her ticket out or at least the best available option. By the time I was born I feel she knew what sort of ride she was in for. She knew she was ascending into the twilight zone, a version of hell she could not escape but it was too late to turn back the clock. She had to learn fast how to control those events and when she realizes, she could not have decided that she must at least survive. One of her strategies must have been to sacrifice me. I remember my mother would steal out of my father's wallet and blame it on me. As ridiculous as it sounds, I was the suspect in any theft from about two years old. I had no need or understanding of the pound notes but still I was the scapegoat. They would fight, and mother would prime me to be quiet to not speak about witnessing her helping herself to the money, and this is how she survived. Playing games and pitting family member against family member was her tactic in the war that was our home life. There was a time when she did intervene in the beating. My father had been hitting me and she had gone to the kitchen to arm herself with a knife. She told him to leave me alone or she would kill him. My father then wrestled the knife from her clutches and then turned it on himself. He then had challenged my mother to push it into him, to kill him. I remember seeing the hate in her eyes and I do remember that she did try to stab my father but after egging her on to kill him he resisted. I believe she really meant to do it and I know she must have wanted to. My mother knew from an early age I would run away. She told me so. When I did run away, I could really take the opportunity to get lost within myself and would pretend my parents were the right people, real people, good people and loving parents my physical absence made it easier to indulge my emotional absence. I was as lost as she was. Her real world was full of emptiness. As I grew, she showed less and less pity, less remorse and she tried hard to manipulate all situations to her advantage. She seemed to give up on the real world and only exist in her fantasy. She was unable to stand and protect her children from the beast. She was unable to leave. She would let this monster torture and subject his son to a terrible childhood. Her decision to accept this existence for her son could be read as loyalty to her husband or fear for her life, but it was just weakness, a desire to live in fantasy rather than face the truth. Do I hate my mother for her inability to protect me? No, I love her. She was my mother. I have one recollection of her happiness, and it came in 1977 at my father's funeral. I swear that she cried tears of joy. She had survived her marriage to this man. Near the end of life my mother had significant brain aneurysms, and this resulted in the need for major surgery. My mother could not do anything for herself, and my sister would wash, change, and dress her. I was amazed at how she was still very feisty. My mother had experienced one of the toughest lives you could. Her body was three-quarters useless and yet she still had spirit. Certainly, my mother was not a good mother, but she was a survivor. She had lived a nightmare, withdrawn from it and passed it on to her children but she did manage to retain part of herself in doing so. I did not go to my mother's funeral. I was told of her death sometime after it happened. I did bring my mother's ashes back to my house though. I walked through the front door and the hairs stood up on my neck. Above my bed was a picture of Paris with the Eiffel Tower prominent. That day my wife had been to buy a quilt set and had returned with the pillows cases and cover each having the same picture of the tower on them. My mother had come home in a box with the same image on. Was my mother trying to communicate with me from the grave? Was it coincidence? It may have just been a reminder of how we had both survived by creating similar fantasies. I was left shaking, and all the memories of childhood came rushing back to overwhelm me. I started to float leave my body and engage all the coping strategies I had created to survive my childhood. None of us escape unscathed in the end. Boiling Point Chapter 3 Our unhappy family suffered tragedy in Victoria. My parents had gone on to have another son two years after I and my twin were born, and he had died. I recall him as a happy, healthy baby with three teeth and I remember trying to stir him from his sleep and his refusal to wake up. I was the one who found my precious little brother lifeless, and I always felt there was a lot of anger towards me from my father as if my discovery was somehow linked to responsibility. Perhaps my face just carried a reminder of the pain of losing a child. I just knew I felt my grief at the loss and a little extra too. I also always had doubts about my mother's possible involvement. She was tired, broken and struggling with the children she already had. Was it impossible that she snapped? My parents were left with three sons and one daughter and in 1960 they packed us into a car and moved us to South Australia. The journey would take two weeks with father drinking heavily and then driving in short bursts. The destination was Port Perry where his mother lived. As far as I know the move was prompted by a combination of a few things. Father had enough of his job and he wanted to be around extended family. We did not ask for any sort of reason and spent the journey staring out of the car window or waiting for him to wake or sober up so we could get on the move again. Perry is still a tough industrial town. It has probably changed very little since my arrival. I recall my first sight of the landscape and the skyline being dominated by the huge wheat silos as we hit town. There was also the smell of the lead smelter, the air always with its ominous touch of sulfur. This was the setting for the most significant event in my young life and my descent into a personal hell. I did not know what I was in for, but I was not naive enough to think life was going to be wonderful from now on. Moving to Perry did give us the opportunity to be around family. My grandmother and great grandmother lived there, and I had aunts and uncles. We could have had freedom and a simple childhood with a wide circle of connected adults. I was not convinced by the idea of an extended family a community where I could grow in a safe and supportive environment. I am not sure what fantasy my mother was moving to, but I had developed a sort of cynicism. I was already a damaged child. I would pinch myself, hit myself and leave bruises over my body. I would like to bang my head hard and try and hurt myself. I would hide under my bed when things got tough. If anybody had looked at me, they would have seen that I was not a happy, normal young boy. I do remember playing out in the garden at the house in Perry with my brother and twin, Peter. I did have some simple childhood pleasures and all of these happy childhood memories are populated by Peter and me. We lived behind a bakery on Swift Street and occasionally we would get treats from the baker. He would give us cakes and biscuits and we would be at the height of luxury and indulgence eating the sweetness out in the garden. I also remember my one and only time on a horse when I and Peter had mounted one briefly in a field before it galloped off and ejected us over a fence. The street was still old-fashioned housing with outside toilets and little in the way of real luxury or modernity but to my young mind it was an exciting, vibrant place as there was a siren from the smelter that sounded every hour on the hour, and we could hear it from our house. The good memories are rare, and those times are hard to recall. Perry did not offer me any more of a childhood that Victoria had done. I was already terrified of my father. I would shake, wet myself and even shit myself in his company. I did not know exactly why I was so scared but later my mother told me about incidents with cigarette butts held on my arms and legs when I had been younger in Victoria. Even if I had not retained all the details of what he did he was still a figure who promised pain and fear and I knew that he had a dislike for me. That day started like most days with my father going to the hotel. It was early in the summer of 1961. He was working on the railways at the time but must have taken some time off to go drinking. Some of his friends from the RAF had come over from Victoria to visit for the week. Mother thought that he might have been playing cards and lost a lot of money. He came back to the house with a smirk on his face and immediately embarked on a sustained beating that would cost me bones and teeth. I was in the backyard playing, I remember it as a sunny day. I think I remember him coming in the house. I would have said hello Rob. As I never called him dad. He called us all into the house and all of us kids were assembled in front of him. He was swearing and punching the walls and shrieking like a lunatic. My siblings were faster than me and took to their heels to escape. My father managed to catch hold of me and declared that if anyone tried to help me, he would kill them. The attack was ferocious and epic my father's masterpiece of domestic violence. Other family members have described the events of that day spanning as much as seven hours. During my assault mother had time to save the other children by taking them through a gap in the fence to a neighbor. My uncles had also tried to intervene and showed up at our house, but my father had said that if they went to my aid, he would kill me. It would take the arrival of eight policemen to finally halt the attack but by that point I had lost teeth and armed with a broomstick father had broken my arm and four ribs. He was a drunk, snarling mess and even as he was restrained by the police, he was still screaming that he was going to kill me. I called him a bastard that day and when I did, he spat at me. The police began to hit him but even that did not wipe the look from his face. When the police had arrived at the house I had been hiding under the bed. I was covered in shit and piss, shaking and refusing to come out. I was seven years old. It took the police close to an hour to talk me out from my refuge. My mother was also trying to get me to emerge but I ignored her avoided her touch and would not respond to her at all When I did come out it was to the arms of a policeman I had more faith in the treatment I would get from a uniformed stranger than anyone in my immediate family The police took me to the hospital then back to the police station where they stripped me of all my clothes and took photos of me naked I then went back to the hospital The photos were to be used as evidence but in the end were considered too horrific to share My mother told me in the latter years that she had never seen me so scared before and that I was as white as a ghost. I told her I had been scared every day of my life. A police officer held me all the way to the hospital and then back to the police station and then back to the hospital. These officers may have had children of my age and may even go home to them that evening after dealing with the effects of my father's evil on his child. I imagine it was a difficult day at work for them. I was worried about my brothers and sisters. I did not know at that stage they were next door, safe, away from my father. I did not know whether they had suffered the same or even worse than me. That evening, I lay delirious in hospital, shaking and crying, and even calling out for my parents. I was still able to hero worship my parents, not because I loved them, them me, or because they had any good qualities, but because I was able to construct a fantasy about who they were. In my semi-conscious state, I was calling out for my fantasy mother and father, the good, strong man and the loving nurturing woman. When I did become fully conscious and found my mother there, I began to scream, and the hospital eventually removed my mother to stop me the distress. There was a court order to keep my father away, but I was so traumatized that the approach of any adult would make me shake and wet the bed. I trusted nobody, but the nurses were patient. They washed me, held me, let me sleep with the light on and would be there to comfort me when I cried. For a long time, I was in a great deal of physical pain and my body was battered and bruised. I spent one week in the Perry Hospital and then was sent to live with a policeman and his family while arrangements were being made. It took me a long time to recover physically from the broken bones and I'm not sure I knew exactly what would happen to me but for this time I was part of a normal family. There was a happiness for me here. The family were kind and had children my age too, but I knew it was temporary and that the family life I was experiencing was never going to be rightly mine. The police had notified the community welfare department about the incident and they wanted to make my brothers and sister wards of state. It would mean my family was to be monitored by the department and visited for the next four years. The consequences for me would be more significant. The attack cost my father the love of his family. His mother and grandmother never forgave him. A lot of his friends were now able to see the type of man he was at home, the true him and they withdrew not liking who they saw. My father was sacked from his job and this began his cycle of job after job, after job, a failure and blown chances. The judge wanted to jail my father. He described him as a vicious creature. I still have the cutting from the local paper with the judge's quote. My father had also admitted to two other counts of violence against me. It turned out that he had been arrested for violence against me on two previous occasions in South Australia. My mother pleaded to the judge for leniency perhaps for his sake or perhaps for herself. She pointed out that he was the breadwinner and that she had given birth to my baby sister and that she had other children to support. The judge heard her appeals and fined my father 50 pounds. This was a lot of money in 1961 and it would have caused the family great hardship to pay it. I recovered my physical health whilst in the care of the police, but I was far from undamaged. My ability to trust, to love to know happiness was starting to erode and at seven years old I needed support and so the authorities decided that I needed to be removed from my family and placed in the safety of the state. I was driven by three policemen to the Glendor boys' home, and I am sure they thought they were delivering me from evil. I was to be protected from my father and placed in the care of professionals who had the experience to bring up a fragile little boy. Out of the frying pan. Hello? Robert Sheriff Brain? If you ever have writer's block do what I do let your fingers do the walking and your brain do the editing. I don't believe in writer's block. Never use the words can't or if or but they should not be in the dictionary. Robert Sheriff brain. Robert Sheriff my books are selling online. Please see information on this page. Robert Sheriff author nobody's home you can buy online. Hello, I am a stolen generation child in 1961. Word of the State of South Australia 1961 Indigenous on my mother's side As a child, I suffered from domestic abuse and sexual abuse. Amazing Grace Stories are powerful. When shared, they can heal, strengthen, and inspire. The stories that people share are based on what people have gathered from life experiences, and the most powerful forms of stories are stories of resilience. The word resilience itself is a demonstration of the ability of a person who bends in situations but does not break. One thing to say there is no such word as cannot, set yourself goals. Do not blame others for your mistakes. And do not use the word if in five years, ten years time do not say to me, "If only I had done that or this, your choices then you must grasp at both hands. Life is a journey of endless struggles, and there are lots of life experiences that push people to the breaking point. But how people react to those situations is what the word resilience stands for. When talking about resilience, such stories not only inspire other people with the same situations to not give up, but it also helps people in raising their voices and coming forward to seek justice. People who are victims of wrongful acts such as harassment, physical, and sexual abuse are pushed to a level of extremity where getting out of the situation seems close to impossible. It is not uncommon for victims to get tangled in self-blame, self-harm, and ultimately, suicide. When they see no way out of their miseries, they surrender to substance abuse, take drugs, and take other medication. However, when victims see people sharing stories of their struggles, their hope is naturally increased. There are many people in the world who are living examples of resilience, including Oprah Winfrey, Robert Lloyd Sheriff second, and many more. Robert says he was not a victim. What happened to him as a child was not his fault. Robert Lloyd Sheriff a Fighter Born on the 8th of July in 1954 at 10 to 25 p.m., Robert Lloyd Sheriff second opened his eyes in Victoria, Australia. The hail was hitting the 10th floor window with such force that the hospital staff thought the windows would break right open. Then at that point, things were only going to get worse for Robert since the beginning. He was born prematurely and weighed only 2 pounds. Robert was born with a twin brother Peter born 10.35 p.m., who was killed in a car accident in 1986 people were in the car they all died. He came from a very unstable family. He prayed to belong to a family who would love him. At seven he tried to commit suicide. That was the first of many attempts. Then came the mutilation where he would get hold of razor blades and cut himself. Robert's father was employed at the Royal Australian Air Force, Defense Force RAF, Robert's father, Robert Lloyd Sheriff 1st, was born in Adelaide, South Australia. His father's mother and Richards was a prostitute, he was 24 years old when the boys were born. Robert Lloyd Sheriff first met his wife in 1953 married Janet Jackson she was 19 when we were born. They were married in December 1953. They would go on to have six children Johnny died from cot death in 1956 he was buried in an unmarked grave Melbourne Victoria, Australia. Robert's great-great-grandparents were from Scotland. Robert's second father Robert First was not very well educated. Robert First his mother and Richards was a prostitute by profession. Robert Lloyd Sheriff First was an alcoholic and beat Robert and his brother regularly and raped both sisters he might have been angry because his mother was a prostitute and of all the 100 s of men he would crave for a father. I saw a photo of my father as a boy and I think the only thing he ever loved was his dog. I know one thing he could never beat her at an argument or outdrink her under the table she was fucking tough. Then at age seven, Robert II he was beaten so severely that he got his four ribs and his arm broken. Robert II was admitted to the hospital in a serious condition. In 1961, the judge called Robert's father a vicious animal. They then took Robert away from his abusive father after the incident and was made a ward of the state of South Australia. The judge on the day also finds my father to make sure it hurt his hip pocket. To me in a way my father reminded me of someone who craved love. Someone without any morals or thought behavior was something you ate. The next two pages is my father Robert first to a T. If you have no morals, you do not have any concept of right and wrong behavior. If you believe your behavior is right, and society believes your behavior is wrong, you have a difference in moral beliefs. Morals are your personal beliefs about what is right and wrong. A natural feeling that makes people know what they are right and wrong and how should behave, some people believe that the increase in crime shows that society is losing its moral compass. A study on human behavior has revealed that 90% of the population can be classified into four basic personality types, optimistic, pessimistic, trusting, and envious. However, the latter of the four types, envious, is the most common, with 30% compared to 20% for each of the other groups. My father Robert First also lacked any Christian beliefs and might have though Christian to be fools. So, therefore, he had no one to answer to just himself and he could please himself regarding his actions. A bit like they are not going to tell me what to do. What is killing this world at present is political correctness. I think if a child plays up a smack on the backside is not going to kill that child. I also believe that children should play outside one hour of TV after school and man to top it off so many parents are giving their children phones at 11 or 12 or 13 years old then games, PlayStation and all those over stupid games. Watch what you give your kids. Tell them to go for a bike ride, a walk, a run, a hop. It is you as parents who owe your children a duty of care. Okay put your hands up remember they are children they are not your best friend. My father Robert first told me on many an occasion he was more frightened of me and what I would do to him once I was an adult. Robert became a ward of the government and was taken to Glendor Boys' home in Adelaide. Even though Robert was surviving in his personal hell, physical abuse, within his house, things got worse at the institution. There, he fell prey to sexual abuse. The state employees used boys, including Robert, for their sexual pleasure. The worst thing these boys would fear was fear itself. They were held captive behind locked doors and were molested multiple times and even murdered. Robert described the acts of employees of the state as as the people behind the operation working for the government, employees of the government sexually abused children at nighttime behind closed doors. Even though every single person was a victim of sexual abuse at the institution, none of the boys stood up. The only way the boys were able to seek revenge was to burn these officers' cars at night—about 20 cars— It was not a pretty sight, such a mess on the roads. Those officers then gave us payback. Other state employees questioned Robert's attitude, and to cure him, they would use shock treatment on him. The excessive physical, sexual, and emotional abuse pushed him into a dark place where he started to self harm. Eventually, he became a patient of depression, something that disturbs him today as well. When Robert received medical treatment, he got out of the institution and was finally able to begin his healing journey. He became a street kid. Robert had his twin brother Peter and sister Josie. My nephew is my brother and brother James, and another sister Annie to look after. Robert Lloyd Sheriff, an inspiration for all victims. Even though Robert had a rally troubled past, he did not give up. Once he left the institution, he took up drawing. Robert was already a passionate artist and started pursuing art from his teens. He did a photo shoot of a still nude model and eventually drew the portrait as well. Then Robert would also become a nude model. Robert married Carol in 1981, Robert is father to six children. Two from first marriage Mark born December 2, 1975. Adam Robert Lloyd born August 8, 1977. Then from the second marriage, four children Robert Lloyd Sheriff, 3rd 1982. Then Kelly Marie Sheriff, born January 6, 1984. Then Haley June Sheriff, named after the comet, born January 23, 1986. Then Jared Heath Peter Lay Sheriff, born September 7, 1988. Robert has 12 grandchildren and two great grandchildren. Despite the hardships, Robert did not let his passions die, and in 2017, he started pursuing acting. To his surprise, he was cast in Time of Zoe in 2016 in Zoe, a zombie short in 2017. And other major productions. https colon slash 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 news slash subuse victims tell their stories https colon slash slash www.booktopia.com.au slash nobody as home robert sheriff slash prod 9781912639335.html Australian actor poet author singer historian part of wolf creek tv series 2015 part of movie maurice's symphony 2015 cameo role motivation speaker speaks up with a loud voice movie Snuff 2016 Murdered. Movie, Cult 2016 Crazy Movie. Robert Sheriff TV Show. Kate Blanchett Production, Stateless, TV Series 2020. Executive Producer, South Australia.